0: All I have in this world is my balls, my word. The
1: African anti-ritual.
0: Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall.
2: <laughs> Someone should tell that crowd you don't have to take your clothes off. Amanda
0: Jones is no minor leaguer who'll be swept off her feet at the touch of your amateur lips. Oh. Me, Mr. Butterfingers. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. I love you guys. Hey, 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 it's the big master control
3: program everybody's been talking
4: about. I'm so sure. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Welcome to another edition of A Fluorescent Decade on a Hill, our 1980s retrospective. This time around, we Talk digging through the known and unknown archives of hip-hop lore, flying high in the U.S. Air Force, ripping on the jets, the band, not the aircraft. But first, one of our friends from the U.K., Angela Bushell, had a moment in the 80s where she was so close to meeting her musical idol, Lena Zaveroni. So close, but ultimately not close enough.
2: I started playing instruments when I was six. I started playing... Uh, like, if you go and imagine a small person at one of these kind of uh, small fold up type organs, my dad had a uh, like a keyboard actually, it was a keyboard and you could fold it up. And he was teaching me to play and he took me along to classes. But I was actually playing an organ from the age of six, and then I went on to nine years old to play the classical guitar. And then after that, uh, I was playing with an orchestra at my school. I was playing the violin, so I really loved music, and I was doing it for many, many years. Now, I had, just like any normal childhood and children today, I was talking to my daughter, actually, she really liked uh, Miley Cyrus, when Miley Cyrus used to be a bit younger, and she had really long hair, and she used to do her program on the television, that Miley Cyrus.
4: Before she became a demon?
2: (laughs) 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 Yeah, something like that. I mean, my person, my idol girl, she never became a demon. Unfortunately, she passed away, but... I had that same kind of fascination with this girl, and her name was Lena
3: breathe.
2: She was a Scottish singer, actually. She was in talent competitions, and she was only about three years Older than me, she was a child star. She'd come on to this program called Opportunity Knox and won this talent competition singing some songs. But I, hear
3: I understand. But where you
2: are is where you been so many. Got fascinated with her. Anyway, I was, I don't know, maybe about 13 years old. I'd literally just won the week before an award for the county. It was uh, Lewisham, actually, in London. I'd literally just won uh, a gold medal for my classical works. And I entered into a competition, much the same as the way, I mean, the modern day now is like, you know, American Idol, or in Britain, Britain's Got Talent. It was very much like... That, but it was just several years before all of the televised talent shows. So I went into this talent show, and I got onto the stage. There were hundreds of people. I was always playing in front of hundreds of people, and this day I was playing in front of a crowd of hundreds. All the lights were on me. I couldn't really see anything. If you've been on a stage before, you know it's kind of you just got your space right next to you and you've got lots of lights on you, and there's, you, can, you can sense the bodies out there, you can see the darkness, but you can't really see very well. So I was out on stage. The prize for winning at this talent contest, you could go to one of Lena's shows, and you could go behind the stage and you know spend the afternoon with her and everything, talking to her, and I really, really wanted to win this prize. Anyway, I started my music, and bear in mind, I knew it very, very well, uh, and I just won medals for it. I started playing and I just stopped. I just com- my whole mind just went completely blank and I sat there for maybe a second, and then I started again and I stopped in exactly the same place. So uh, now I was really hot and bothered around the color but I wasn't gonna try starting it again, so i I reached back for my music. I did have my music behind me. I reached back for it and I put it in front of me onto the uh, the stand and then I went on to play the music and of course I didn't look at the sheet at all. There must have been something that I didn't realize about having the, the music sheet in front of me and then I got off stage and I just cried my eyes out oh. and the reason why is because I knew I wasn't going to win and I wouldn't be able to meet Lee <laughs> oh.
4: So you never got to meet her ever?
2: I never got to meet her. I followed her a little bit as, as a child would do. I just like would listen to what she was doing in the newspapers and things like that. But I was conscious that at the age of about 15, she had uh, anorexia neurosis and, uh, neurosis and she, she did pass away very young, at the age of 35. Yeah. So I, and I I was very sad. She died in 1999 and I never got a chance to meet her. And I'm, I That was the closest I got. And
0: I'm you. <laughs> Are you well again now?
2: I feel fit and well now, yeah. It's
0: been a long struggle, isn't it?
2: It has, it has.
4: What's been the no. worst thing about it? Is it a kind of mental battle? Because people who don't suffer from anorexia, they yes. can't understand why oh, people won't eat to, to, to live. You it's
2: know? a lot more complicated than just eating. It's a lot more to do with feelings and things.
4: Like a lot of kids in the 80s that loved the hip hop of the time, you probably read and reread the liner notes and lyrics of LPs and cassettes, devoured what little press the genre got in those days, and dreamed of hanging with the likes of Grandmaster Flash, the Sugar Hill Gang, Houdini, and so many others. Well, our next guest, Noah Eumann, dreamed that dream as well, except that he eventually got to direct some of the recent efforts to reissue a few of the great treasures of those early days. My first question for you is, do you remember when you first
1: heard hip-hop? It was from my older brother Michael, who worked for Russell Simmons' management company, Rush Management. So this was early 80s. Uh-huh. This was around 84, How did he get that gig? It must have been... My brother was a graffiti artist, he's my half-brother, so he wasn't living with us in New Jersey, he was living in Manhattan and he grew up with all all these people, Mm -hmm. you know, he he grew up with, uh, well, he didn't grow up with, but it was the same circle as like Basquiat, uh, Futura 2000, Dr. Revolt, all those graffiti artists at the time, and my brother was more of a canvas artist, and he also was really into airbrushing. Uh (laughs) It was all one big circle, you know. And the other aspect I got into hip-hop was uh, listening to Mr. Magic's Rap Attack. Yeah. Um, that was a New York City radio show. There was also Chuck Chill Out was another New York radio show. And I could get those programs in New Jersey. So
3: why not kick it live so I'll get the tape recorders going? This is a Rap Attack exclusive.
4: What are some of the early groups that you thought, okay, these are it or these are my favorite? This happened all at the same time. I was really into punk rock,
1: I was into heavy metal and I was into hip-hop. And I liked the harder, more aggressive stuff like Run DMC. They were very percussion-oriented. The song, King of Rock, was a rock song, essentially. And Run DMC, if you had ever seen them live, they were a rock band. So yeah, the early groups, you know, the standards. Like I liked the Fat Boys, I liked stuff that was funny, stuff that had a harder edge. And then when the BC Boys came out, for a lot of people, they melded a lot of elements. And I had
2: heard Cookie Puss first. May I help you? Yes, what's your name? Hello? Hello, man, you got Cookie Puss's number? He's my supervisor. He'll help you.
1: So it was a weird introduction to them. And then they, they did a couple 12 inches for Def Jam that were similar to uh, the song, Rock Hard, and She's On It. What really changed it for me was, uh, I think it was either Hold It Now and Hit It or The New Style, one of those two.
4: Now they were a punk band originally, right? Yes. Yeah. I can't even remember. I mean, I know I've heard it, the punk stuff. Did it have any essence of hip-hop to it?
1: No, but, so when the Beasties were a hardcore band, they put out their EP Polly Wild stew. At the same time, Ad Rock wasn't in the Beastie Boys. He was in a band called The Young and the Useless. They had a 7-inch out, and there is a rap on there. It's terrible. Is it Ad Rock? No. I'm pretty sure it's Dave Skilkin rapping, who's since passed away.
2: I'm close the edge. I to lose my
1: I interned at various labels through college, like um, Blue Note, EMI, Matador, Caroline Records Mm -hmm. distribution. Then I was working at Sterling Sound, a mastering studio in New York City, and it's in an old Nabisco factory. you still smell like cookies? Well, no, but the funny thing is, I, I had a different job at the same space, and in the wintertime, all this goop would be on my desk. Every day I'd come in, this like brown sticky goop and it dawned on me that the pipes would heat up in the floorboards and there was sugar dust and this was now melting and becoming so molasses was dripping on my desk. So anyway, I was working at Sterling Sound and Sony came in, they did a lot of their jobs there, but Sony Legacy said, hey, do you guys know anything about hip hop because we're about to reissue... The first four Run DMC albums, and they said, "Oh, uh, you should talk to our librarian, which was me. He does a hip hop show on WFMU. Doing reissues was my dream job.
4: So you never done it, but you wanted to. I do it.
1: worked on a few, but I did like you know wrote liner notes to one to a hardcore record, you know, and like, but I never. This was like the real thing. So they got in touch with me. I went up to Sony, I met with Steve Berkowitz, who has a crazy history if you look him up. He said, do you know how to do this more or less? Is this your thing? You know, can you do it? I was like, I'm your guy, I can do it. He's like, all right, go. And I left and I said, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. So I mirrored the first four Run DMC reissues after Two Labels that I think do the best jobs at reissues is Norton Records, Billy Miller, rest in peace, and Mary Melina. They are a couple and they run this label out of Brooklyn. And then Sundazed by Bob Irwin. Those two labels, I always felt like this is how a reissue should look liner notes, photos, bonus tracks, concert flyers, the works. So that's what I tried to replicate with the Run DMC reissues. And I called Bill Adler, who was Russell Simmons' first employee when he started Def Jam. It uh, might have been for Rush, actually. He might have worked for Rush, but anyway, Bill Adler knows more about Run DMC than the group themselves. <laughs> All right. So he wrote the liner notes to one of them, and then he guided me the rest of the way. And it's to rock a rap, to
3: rock a rap. That's right. On time it's tricky. we oh, Tricky, 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 tricky. And it's
4: tricky to rock. When they do these kind of things, they have a budget. There's a budget. It
1: usually changes. But the trick when doing a reissue is, and this is just the, some backstory that you may not care about, but is to put in a higher number for your budget. And then when you come back with the finished product and you're under the budget, you're the
4: hero. Right. Okay. Now, for the Run DMC, what are some things that stand out about those reissues or the, your experience in doing Obviously, it was your first one, but I mean did you talk with the guys in the group and
1: a little bit mostly it was digging for archival material and we pulled all the tapes from iron mountain which is a storage facility inside a mountain it's used by the fbi it's used by every record label it's the biggest storage facility definitely in the country i don't know about the world okay pulled all the tapes and this was the best part was going through the getting the tapes baked and re-listening to all these tapes and just seeing what's on there so these are other songs are they different takes or are they just people talking everything so the best thing is when you would find a tape box and it said dnu that means do not use Uh so that means it was a rejected tape or something was on there that they didn't care about that's what you wanted and then going through larry smith's garage finding like tiny reels I found jingles that they did for Hustler magazine. We found this song called Crack, that was supposed to be the duet with Michael Jackson. That was only ever rumored to have existed really? or happened. Like everybody was like, yeah, they're gonna do a song together. But nothing ever materialized and no one ever knew much more about it until we found the song. And Michael was on it? No, it's a demo and it's just their part. And like that was going to be the song.
3: So he brought her home,
1: she took them back. They made so much love, he caught a heart attack. She drove him to his grave, that's where he's at. And the girl back to him is a girl called Rack. I also found songs with like different verses, different samples. For my first reissue, it was probably the best experience mm-hmm. as far as digging for archival
4: stuff. Well, let me ask you this because, like, when you're putting this together, because you could put albums out that are to be listened to and and like you know rock out to and then there's ones that you study. I I think about the Pet Sounds, Yep. there was a box set of that and I didn't drive down the road listening to that thing. I I sat at home in the headphones and was studying. How do you make that distinction when you're putting these things together? That's
1: a tough call and it's a very interesting thing because I definitely like that aspect of it even though when you mention the Beach Boys I listened to a box set bootleg once of outtakes of like It was like six CDs of four songs, and it was take after take after take. But it's interesting seeing the evolution of the song and seeing somebody Mm -hmm. like Brian Wilson work in the studio and hearing him. But I would never listen to it a second time. Right. (laughs) Yes. So thankfully, there's not a lot of that kind of stuff, yes and no, because it would be cool to hear it. But there was not a ton of studio chatter Mm -hmm. and retakes. The songs, I'm assuming, were just worked out ahead of time, Mm -hmm. mostly and probably due to budget. So I would like to have the album, if it's on the CD, and then after it, like a lot of things, you have the bonus tracks. Right. And I try to include things like radio drops. Mm-hmm. A lot of hip-hop artists would do jingles for rap radio shows. Mm-hmm. So just like finding those are amazing, because they're like these one-minute little songs mm-hmm. that nobody knows where they are, for the most part. Nobody knows what happens, but a lot of people remember them. Oh yeah, I remember Big Daddy Kane used to do the stuff for you know Marley Marl on the radio, and there's ones by the Jungle Brothers, like all these groups did these radio spots. So finding those was really cool. you
3: guys. Go. Go. till the rhyme, it's light, it's so smooth. that so you'll bust the move. No debate, it's great. Boy, it ain't no joke. Tell You
1: Um, I found a commercial they had done for some concert. I can't remember right now. But it was like maybe at the, one of these shows at the Apollo. So that, I had all these different takes, which was really cool.
3: I'm JMS to J. Adidas, WBLS, and Rush Productions presents a fundraising appearance by the Kings of Rap and Roll. Okay,
2: take your time, Jay. You sound like you're rushing.
1: That's number eight. You gotta rush. We only got 60 seconds to say a lot of. I like it to be a bit of both listening and not to be too
4: overbearing with study the stuff. The nerd stuff, yeah. Yeah. You've done several archival projects, and not just hip-hop or 80s stuff, but you know uh, for other companies and other genres. But have you ever come across unreleased tracks that you thought, like, man, this, is, this should have been the single? Or Yes. Okay.
1: There's one in particular, and it's actually a Run DMC song. Mm-hmm. It's a different version of the song uh, How'd You Do It, D, on Tougher Than Leather. Different sample. It was a Led Zeppelin sample.
4: And you got to put this on the...
1: No, I couldn't put it on because I couldn't get the sample cleared by Led Zeppelin.
2: And
1: I'm thinking, like, Sony said, you're not going to get it cleared. Everybody said, you're not going to get that cleared. And I said, I know I will get it cleared if I can get Robert Plant on (laughs) the phone. That was my goal. Because I'm like... Led Zeppelin stole from the blues big time. Not only did they steal riffs, but they flat out stole lyrics from Robert Johnson, Willie Dixon. And they eventually got busted, I think, by Willie Dixon. So why wouldn't they say, well, we understand and we love this music. And so, yeah, you know, and I'm just pretty confident that R Plant would have said, yeah, use it.
4: Didn't Puff Daddy use a a Zeppelin song in one of his...
1: Cashmere, yeah, yeah, yeah. He got that cleared, and that, or it might have even been replayed by Jimmy Page.
4: Okay, so I want to talk about one of my favorite groups during this time, and I've talked about them several times on these podcasts with the Fat Boys. All right. We mentioned before. So you got to be part of that reissue, which I'm sitting here looking at it here on the table and it's a pizza box. Yeah. And it has the, the guys on the front in the pizza box, you know, a book and a vinyl record that looks like a pizza. So talk about this project. I was
1: asked to be involved in this project by Traffic Entertainment up in Boston. I did the same thing. I went and tracked down as much archival stuff on the group, newspaper clippings, European releases with different album cover art. And do you have to go buy this? Some of it, yeah. For example, when I did the Run DMC project, I found a single, a UK single for You Talk Too Much, and I showed it to Bill Adler, and he didn't even know it ever existed because it never came out with this artwork in the US. He's like, I've never even seen that before. He's like, I know the photo shoot, But I've never seen that single before. So, Europe historically has always put picture sleeves on singles. U.S. doesn't always. So you'll find really cool, specifically with hip hop, you'll find tons of different singles or different cover art for singles. So I tracked down some European fat boys covers. I tracked down photos of them with various celebrities. I interviewed their manager. Who was the brains
4: behind that group? Um, now, they, just for people listening who may not know, they originally were called the Disco Three. Yeah. And take
2: it from me, listen to the fish sounds of the Disco Three. Ha
1: ha! <laughs> okay, so I'm gonna go briefly to the beginning of the Fat Boys. Charles Stetler, was their manager. Before he was their manager he made a cassette where he walked around New York City just recording the sounds Uh of the city. And he made this cassette called Take the City With You. He sold them by hand all over New York City. They were just ambient noise. Yeah. And the whole thing was like, if you're out on vacation and you miss the noise from New York, (laughs) here it is. Yeah. And the thing was a blockbuster. It did really well. He sold I can't remember how many copies but to like Barney's or one of those you know stores. So fast forward maybe a year later or so, he decides to do a hip hop version of this record. And it's like a dance remix. Completely flops. He had somebody invest in it, they pumped all this money into it and nobody bought it. It was terrible. But I bet you own it. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that record was called Tin Pan Apple After Dark. So Charles Stetler comes with the genius idea. He somehow convinces Radio City Music Hall to hold a, a rap and dance contest. They had never had hip hop there before at this point. Everybody that enters this contest, and they have pre-contests. What are they called? Like mini contests mm-hmm. to go to the finals. Uh-huh. So they have the, the pre-contest. Uh, various boroughs throughout New York. Everybody that enters has to buy a copy of this record. Oh, man. Smart. So now he makes back his money that he got pumped into this record, and they have to do their own version of this record. Three guys go to Radio City, and they make it to the finals, and they win, and they are the Disco 3. Mr. Magic is the host of the show. Everybody was there. Everybody who was anybody at the time was in the audience. Monica Lynch from Tommy Boy Records, Russell Simmons, you name it. They were all there, and they, I think a lot of them were judges, too. But uh, at the end of the CD reissue of the Fat Boys is Mr. Magic. It's uncredited on the CD, but it's Mr. Magic saying, the winners are the Disco 3. That's how the Disco 3 got their record deal. But Charles Stetler didn't have a record label, so then he's like, wow, now that I gave this contest, and now I need to create a record label." So he created a record label, and then he had them change their They did a few singles as the Disco 3, but he changed their name to the Fat Boys. And they were okay with that, or they just... I guess so. I don't... You know, there's a gray area, you never know who is telling the truth, mm-hmm. but I tend to believe that he was the brains behind everything. And, and supposedly it was out of an argument. like, you're nothing but a bunch of fat boys.
2: Jam is halfway you sit down for a while a young lady with a big smile. She wants to feed But later for that, you're going some more.
4: How did you get involved in this reissue
1: project? The company, Traffic Entertainment, was like, hey is this something you'd want to work on? I had helped them a lot with other projects and they knew I love this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm this era and also just digging this stuff up so they're like you want to work on this i said yes please (laughs) and at one point they had to tell me all right stop digging and hand them the project because you're taking too long (laughs) all right
4: now buffy had passed by the time yeah oh yeah this was in recent years this project okay but the other two did you get to talk with them much or prince marky d for some reason
1: I don't know if he didn't want to talk, but he wouldn't re- return any of my calls. It, it was tough because, you know, I had interviewed everybody that was involved in the making of the record. I
4: spoke to Curtis Blow. Oh yeah. spoke to Larry Smith. And what, what did Curtis have to say?
1: Oh, he was like, so positive and saying like, how great a time it was. and He had nothing but good things to say yeah. about the whole experience.
4: Okay, so we're looking at another reissue.
1: The song is called Beat Bop, and it's Ramel Z vs. K Rob. This is from 1983. It was supposedly, and it's debated for years, produced by Basquiat. He did the artwork on on the album cover. So he produced this record, and if you read the liner notes, interviews with all the musicians. I didn't set these interviews up. They were pre-done. It's one of the greatest rap songs of all time over
3: saying the hell do
1: we pay for what the a couple no sense it's a huge huge influence on the BC boys it's a big influence on Cypress Hill it's been sampled like crazy Rimmel Z, if you look him up You can just type it in how it sounds. Mm -hmm. He was one of the weirdest dudes in Mm hip-hop of all time. He would make these Shogun Warrior body uniforms out of garbage. He was also one of the earliest, well, one of the early graffiti artists. He was involved in the hip-hop scene. He's in Wild Style, but this one record was his best record. So I was going to reissue this record for Jack White's label, Third Man, and Sony approved it and then they came back and realized that it had already been licensed. So I was like, well, who did you license it to? I was so mad, I have to admit like, who would you license it to? They said, oh, it's Traffic Entertainment, the company I've I've done work with, who did did the Fat Boy. I said, oh, okay, great. So let me contact them. So I'm like, hey, how are you guys going to release this record? They're like, oh, just with like a regular blank sleeve. I said, well, you know, the original artwork, which was limited, was done by Basquiat. They said, yeah, we can't get that. We can't put that out. It hasn't been reissued with the artwork since it first came out. So what happened is he put it, Basquiat put it out on his own label and then shortly after Profile Records bought the record and they had the option to buy the art too and they passed. They probably could have bought the art I'm imagining maybe for a thousand bucks if that. His paintings go for millions now, multi-millions. I actually had the artwork cleared from his estate and nobody knew that. Uh-huh. So I said, well why don't you do this reissue with me because I got the artwork cleared. And they said, oh, okay. (laughs) And I said, you know what, let's take it one step further. Let's put in liner notes and let's track down any kind of image that we can find. So there's a guy that used to run a website called cocaineblunts.com. Awesome. Yeah, Yeah, incredible. (laughs) Um, Very imaginative. (laughs) Yeah. He did a piece on it already. So he interviewed everybody, even Ramel Z, because this is before he had passed away. Basquiat, unfortunately, was already dead, so he's not interviewed. But everybody's interviewed in these liner notes, and we also tracked down the artwork from the tape, the original tape box. So that's inside the liner notes. So it's one of my proudest moments doing reissues.
2: You know the crew that can make you get down with the funky moves. Like when I get down to the funky check, you know, just makes you bet, bet your casual, like,
3: the wings
4: of America, the United States Air Force,
0: discover a great way of life.
4: Aim high, Air Force. Like any decade in the history of humanity, the 80s had its share of military conflicts and tensions, and so those in the armed forces were standing by, ready to react and defend the rest of us. Ilanka Dunan chose to join the US Air Force, and so it gives us a little bit of a look into that experience reading from her journals she kept in those days, which included marching around rapping some of the Air Force's own funky fresh rhymes, so to speak.
0: I would say one of the factors for me in joining the Air Force, I mean, I'd been at UCLA for about a year and a half. It wasn't really a good fit. I went there because my parents went there, and there was this this flow. Okay, you go to high school, you graduate high school, you go to college, and it was, of course it was going to be UCLA for me, but it just wasn't a good fit. And I was in... Air Force ROTC. And I sort of like that. And this non-fit with UCLA, I eventually just enlisted in the Air Force. So it's kind of a long story how I did that. But one of the things that made me look on the Air Force with favor was Robert A. Heinlein. And he was a big believer in military and doing service for your country. And in Starship Troopers, this whole thing about in order to be a proper citizen, you need to serve. Right. And, and so I, I joined the Air Force.
4: This is like Israel is. I think every citizen has to put two years in, you know.
0: There's many countries that have this, the draft. Mm-hmm. See, I just ordered what is quite likely to be my last decent civilian meal. What did I order? A BLT, of course. I'm getting a little nervous, but I'm really not very scared. About an hour and a half later, I'm still at LAX. Oh, at 6.20, while I'm waiting to go to Texas, Rosie Greer, who's a uh, really famous uh, character. Rosie Greer just walked by. He is huge, and with a smile to match.
1: It's the battle of the Rosies. This Rosie's got the big towel. This Rosie's got the quicker
2: one, Bounty.
1: You don't stand a chance, Rosie.
2: I'm gonna wipe you out, Rosie. And they're off!
0: I can't believe this. Here I am, an astronomy major, and here is some fool next to me arguing with me about the position of the Little Dipper. Okay, fine. He wants full credit. Chris, because he saw me writing. Chris Watson. Fool of the third degree. I think he got it confused with the Pleiades over in Taurus. He says it's an itty-bitty little dipper. So he, he, I don't know if you know the stars, uh-huh. but anyway, he was arguing with me, and I was like, nope, I know better than you do. can restrain Pleiades
4: Or know the laws of we been before
0: We just arrived in Texas, and right off the bat, they started treating us in a no-nonsense fashion. A couple of my friends from L.A. are starting to look really scared. For instance, Mom, Linda, is just keeping her head down, her mouth shut, and practically running to obey orders. This looks a little shaky, maybe, because I'm riding on the bus. I hope they let me keep this. A few people are trying to add hope to the air by assuring people they'll do all right just as long as they hustle to do what they're told. I remember the last words of advice from the officer in Los Angeles To succeed in basic, all you have to do is keep your eyes open, your mouth shut, and do as you're told. Uh I'm sure going to try and do everything. And as Heinlein said, do it on the bounce. Stay with it, kid. So there were these people called road guards. So as the flight, was, which was the group of us, was marching from one place to another, we had road guards in front of us that, as the flight was marching, the road guards would suddenly run ahead and and stop the traffic so that the flight could keep marching Mm -hmm. through the intersection. And so they'd go out, and then they would come back in at the end, and the road guards were always rotating uh, so they could do this. And so as we're marching, one of the things that we would sing is they would say, Road guards in and road guards out, road guards running all about. If I had a low IQ, I could be a road guard too. If my IQ was lower than that, I could wear a T.I.'s hat. And they go, sound off, one, two. Was it T.I.? T.I. was the technical instructor okay. who was the person who would be marching us. or. or <laughs> and then we'd always kind of like, sound off, one, two. It was a call and response. Mm-hmm. So whoever was marching us would say, sound off. And we'd respond, one, two. And then say it again, mm-hmm. three, four. Bring it on down. And then we'd all go together, U.S. Air Force, U.S. Air <laughs> Force. And, and it was just a, a bonding uh-huh. thing. If I die in San Antonio, Send my body way back home in my casket. I reside grounded to the inspection side. That was from when we made our beds. The beds had to be made in a very specific way where you you fold the blankets this way and the pillow. And to keep it all very, very even, they had to be grounded, which meant the, the mattress had to be pushed to just to the edge uh-huh. of the frame that was called the inspection side so as they were inspecting they would look is the mattress even is the pillow even are the, are the shoes even so there was a thing like in my casket I reside grounded to the inspection side <laughs> I'll be really? even in the in the casket. <laughs> if my hands are across my chest tell my mom I did my best if my hands are in my lap Tell my mom I got the clap. Sound off. <laughs> <laughs> and then a oh, wow. birdie birdie in the sky. Don't drop your load on my TI. <laughs> our TI is really swell. Sometimes we think he came from yeah. sound off. <laughs> 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 where we'd all stomp our foot uh-huh. you know, as, as we went through it. They say that in the Air Force, the pay is mighty fine. They give you $100 and take back 99 <laughs> If you want a date tonight, call upon our sister flight. They'll fall out in PC shirts, combat boots, and miniskirts. Sound off!
4: Lastly, K Shorty Bell is back to bash an eighties group I adored. The Jets. I know that you're a huge fan of the group The Jets.
3: Yes, The Jets. Oh, yes.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. I remember, this was back in the days of MySpace, I think. I had said something, and you Shit. said you said something like those w- weird little Hawaiian people. That, are-
3: that's what they were, and I just could. Oh God!
4: It's obvious you don't like them. Uh, that was
3: one group I just could not get behind. I just. oh God. Why? They were adorable. Like the Hawaiian Jacksons. Really? <laughs> Hell yeah! And they all had huge hair. Uh-huh. No. Were they Mormon or something? They had like a ton of. It ton was like of kids. fifty of them. Yeah. I don't, I, I, I don't know what they were. I don't know what it was about that group. I just did not like. It was like when that first hit came out.
4: Was it a private number or a crush on you? That one.
3: Oh my god. That song annoyed the, the hell girl has out col- of me. <laughs> oh my god. It, I thought it, when I first heard it, I thought it was expose. Oh, yeah. Because that's yeah. what it sounded like. And then I saw the video, I was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> Who are all these people? And then you started hearing about the bands. And then of course, you know, my favorite magazines at the time, Tiger Beat, Teen Beat, and all that stuff. They so 16, have having all these pictures of these people. I'm like, who the hell are these people? Why are they taking over my magazines? <laughs> <laughs> like, Stop it, where are my guys? I don't want to see these chicks and all these brothers and the big happy, no.
4: I always thought that at least the one girl that sang on "Crush on You," her voice was just unique because like she had some range and she
3: had a really great range, but she sounded like the girl from Expo's act.
4: <laughs> Which girl? I mean, yeah. they had like one of everything in that group. I can't remember what it was
3: the little short Asian-y one. Okay,
4: yeah, yeah. That's who there she sounded go.
3: like. Maybe was it was like, an Asian. Yeah, it was like yeah, yeah. No, I just I just couldn't get behind that band. <laughs>
4: sister was a fan of the Jets, <laughs> and uh, sometimes I would borrow the cassette to play, yeah. and she started to complain about there was these little fart noises on the, the tape, and she couldn't figure out why they were there in the middle of the songs, and, it, you know, had I thought about it, I actually would have put them on there, but I didn't, what oh. happened what happened was the cassette player I had, yeah. if you turned it, the power off while it was still playing, mm-hmm. it left a little fart noise on it. I found out later. Nice, I, I like that. I've never told my sister, but maybe if she listens to this, she'll file in. She'll,
3: she'll, she'll figure that out. So. I like that. I've an telephone anytime I
4: hear Okay, it's all for now. If you missed the back-in-the-day days, you might check out not only earlier episodes of A Fluorescent Decade on a Hill, but also songs from the 1980s Roller Ring Dumpster and the role-playing game we set in the 80s and recorded Legend of the Like Totally Epic Journey Quest. In the Corner Back by the Wood Pile podcast is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can email us at spuncounterguy at com. You can follow us on Twitter at spuncounterguy. Be sure to download the new Podbean app to hear this podcast and others on your tablet and smartphone. And we are now on iTunes. Just do a search for Back by the Woodpile on the iTunes store and we should pop up. And a special thanks to brofisticate.com.